Hello and welcome to Buy Positive. This week we have an interview with a very special guest. So my name is Hayden. Um, I describe myself as a queer black activist. I currently work in risk mitigation, but um, I'm studying criminal justice. So my goal is to eventually, you know, transfer into a career either helping immigration law or working in the criminal justice field. Um, I really want to talk about bi erasure and kind of some of the, uh, you know, nuances that go into that. Um, because as I said, you know, I identify as queer, but I am uh, bisexual. Um, I'm currently in a six-year relationship, very happy uh, with my husband, who I've been married to for the past two years. Um, and we live in Northern California. So that's just a little bit about me. Our assumption is that when you are in a long-term relationship with a same-gendered partner, people would usually assume you are monosexual and you are either gay or lesbian. Is that Has that been your experience? All the time. Uh, I, yeah, we constantly get classified as gay couple. It's, it's gotten to the point where I really don't correct people. I used to spend a lot of time correcting people and spend a lot of time emphasizing that I'm bisexual, but I feel like over the course of time, I've just sort of come to accept gay as an umbrella term because most people really from the outside are going to look at our relationship and just assume that. And then two, uh, I understand that not everyone will get the nuance or even have I won't even have time to have that sort of conversation with everybody. So to me, it makes no difference. I know how I identify. I know who I am. Uh, so I've kind of come to that point where I feel more comfortable with it. But it used to bother me a lot in the beginning, and it, it does happen a lot. And do you mind us asking how long you've been out? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I've been out since, let's see, 2000... 2011. So, yeah. So like nine, almost nine years now. Yeah, it's been about nine years now. Yeah, because I was 21 at the time when I decided that. And I came out on Facebook because <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous and I had already talked to some of my close friends about it, but I didn't really talk to my family about it. And that was a way to just tell everybody at once. That makes sense. And how was the reception? My siblings were, I have four siblings. Um, they were really cool accepting right away. My mom took a little bit of time to warm up to the idea. Um, I think it, she was comfortable with me being bi and she'd known me dating girls. And so she just thought, well, maybe I'll, it's a phase and I'll just marry a woman and it'll be okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and then obviously that didn't happen. Um, mm -hmm. But with, uh, with my dad, he was surprisingly really accepting. Um, and you know, he's from the military and he was, he's from Trinidad. So I didn't really expect him just because of the machismo culture and, and all of that to really accept it right away. But he's been really cool. And at first, he kind of referred to my uh, my husband as my friend for a little bit, you know, when we were dating. Um, but once the relationship escalated, he he started accepting it and, and just referring to him, you know, the same way he refers to my other siblings and, and their significant others. So, yeah, that's great. And have you found that there is um there may be a clash between, um, you know, this U.S. American liberal, at least on, on the liberal part of U.S. America, um. Uh, acceptance of, of LGBTQ individuals in the family and the more traditional culture, such as the Trinidadian culture? Definitely. Um, we, we're actually planning a trip to Trinidad next year for a family reunion, and I'm super nervous because I know the culture there is a lot different as far as acceptance of LGBT individuals. Um, they have a lot of laws in the books from British colonialism that are very homophobic. 
Um, and I think right now in Trinidad, they don't legally allow LGBT immigrants to, to enter the country. However, I've read that that's not an enforced law. So it's just something, again, that is kind of a colonial holdover that hasn't been removed yet. Um, and the fact that it hasn't been removed is still troubling to me. So uh, I worry about how my extended family is going to take it because I don't really communicate with them very often. So it'll be kind of the first time meeting me and also meeting my husband and being introduced to, a, to that. I definitely have relatives um, in my extended family who still refer to it as a lifestyle. So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of challenging, but, um, and same thing with my husband. I mean, you know, we're both, you know, our families are adjusting to it. Um, but it's nice to kind of be the guinea pigs in that, in that instance, because, you know, we have both now, um, my husband has a nephew and then I have a niece on the way. So we have a next generation that we get to teach about these things and hopefully kind of remove some of the stigma and the oddity, you know, surrounding it. Yeah, we were actually talking about this this just before calling you. Um, that how great it is for kids who can live um, from the beginning in a world where it's not weird to see some gender relationship uh, and to uh, be more accepting. Um, I mean, because kids are naturally accepting um, unless we tell them otherwise. And and it's so nice to be able to um, actually do that to. Uh, to teach to kids uh, that this, it's not, it's not, I was gonna say tolerance, it's absolutely not tolerance. It's just acceptance, it's even beyond acceptance because it's just, yeah, how things are for them, entirely natural. And um, so on a, little bit on a, about your, your, your personal journey, how did that, um, the self-acceptance part, how did that work out for you? That was very difficult. Um, I I really wish I lived in a world where, from the beginning, I had a lot of role models of same gender relationships because I really didn't. And I I grew up in a very stifling environment for that sort of thing. My family was, like I said from the very beginning, you know, not very uh, accepting of 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 same sex relationships until I was in one, and then I was the you know relative that I think kind of they rallied around. Um, but I kind of experienced I you know did the drinking and partying and experimentation with drugs and all of that. Uh, it took me a long time to really learn how to accept myself. And I, I went into therapy and, and uh, ended up feeling a lot better and becoming a lot more whole and learning to accept who I was before I even got into a relationship. And then by the time I was in a relationship, I was a lot more solid. And, and now I feel like, you know, I can take on anything. So it definitely, it was a, a long, I, I want to say it was like a five, six year, you know, journey to feeling like, okay, I know who I am <laughs> again, <laughs> because I had one version of myself and one view of myself prior to coming out. And then I think that just completely changed. And is, um, is there anything in particular, I mean, besides therapy, um, any particular, I guess what we would call in therapy a positive resource that helped you through this journey, either perhaps um, support of uh, your friends or spirituality or anything like that, that you really uh, kind of leaned on. I did have really supportive friends. Um, also, just like I said, my siblings, like that was around the time where I started to lean on them more and those bonds strengthened a lot more and we all still are are really communicative with each other and vent to each other 
And I think that really helped having that sense of family and community around me really helped because that was something I had struggled with in coming out was whether they would accept me or not. And so I didn't, you know, I kind of had distanced myself from them a little bit. And uh, it was only after after I really realized, you know, that those bonds were important and that I was lacking that and and started to reach out that I started to feel like I could really, you know, turn my life around. And also I had a I had a car accident, so it kind of um, immobilized me for a bit. And and I was able to I wasn't able to go out and to party and to do all those things. So I kind of had no choice but to stay inside and regroup and <laughs> figure things out, you know. Do you feel like the the whole like kind of party drug culture was part of that journey of self acceptance or perhaps a way to um, escape the internalized homo slash biphobia that you were feeling at the time? I mean. I had other factors that definitely contributed to that. I think I also lived in a really boring town and I was in my twenties and a lot of my friends were doing the same thing and I wanted to fit in and I wanted to feel normal. Um, and I so I think part of it definitely was drowning out, you know, and, and, and dealing with the internalized biphobia and the internalized homophobia. And part of it was also just wanting to feel like a normal 20 year old and thinking that like, this is what you have to do to feel normal. And because, I probably had more of a sense of of self-hatred due to the, you know, um, internalized biphobia and, and homophobia that I was dealing with. I probably leaned into it a little bit heavier than others because it was twofold for me. It was just normal, you know, youth escapism. College is hard. My parents are annoying. Uh, and then, you know, on top of that, dealing with my sexuality and not really knowing who I was. When did you uh, first realize that, well, you weren't straight? So I kind of, I had like indications that I wasn't straight pretty early on, like in high school and middle school, but I kind of buried it. Like I would look at pictures of guys and then like I would not do it for a long time and then tell myself like, see, that was just a misstep. I don't have to, you know, I'd feel bad, guilt, shame, all that. And then I would think, okay, like, this is fine. I, you know, I haven't done it for six months. I'm good. I have a girlfriend, you know, then I got a girlfriend. And so that was a thing that I focused on for a long time. And then, um, I was like 18 or 19 and I kissed a guy for the first time. And then I realized that, uh, it was more than just like passing thoughts or, or curiosity. Cause I was able to read articles too online, you know, about, about, um, how young people sometimes explore uh, curiosities about the same gender and have dreams and fantasies, et cetera, and how it's totally normal. So I was always able to rationalize away the feelings that I was having. But once I had kissed someone of the same gender and really experienced like romantic feelings the same way that I had feeling, experienced romantic feelings for girls, I knew that, okay, <laughs> I'm definitely not straight. <laughs> and then it was more confusing because I was like, well, I'm not gay. Cause I know I've had these situations with girls and, you know, sexual and intimate, you know, relationships with girls. So it was really confusing to me to figure that out. And bisexuality wasn't something that I heard being mentioned around me a lot or even talked about around me a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pretty, unfortunately pretty common. In the end, there's a little bit of a delay in the realization of what's happening because there's this possibility of conforming. Like being, it was in those in the quote unquote straight relationships, 
uh, or experiencing the straits uh, attractions um, that you're expected to to uh, to uh, to feel to have and to feel. So yeah, it it's um, it can be extremely confusing. Uh, what what is what is the you feel now in hindsight? What is what is it that maybe helped you the most to make sense of it of this at this very confusing time? I would say writing. I, that's why I turned to just like journaling and writing poetry and writing fictional stories because I was able to conceptualize myself in the situations and get feedback from other people that was kind of anonymous without them really knowing that it was necessarily, you know, part of my life story or a part of, you know, something that I was feeling. Um, and I still write in that way that sometimes it's semi-personal, sometimes it's, it's allegory, but it's, it's been something that's been cathartic for me and a way for me to be able to figure that out. And then I was also able to just meet other queer people and be around other people in the community and get to know their stories. And that was, I was able to realize that I was more normal than I thought I was. Yeah. If we speak about um, stereotypes, even though things are changing now, largely until like, yeah, five, two years ago, people would conceptualize being a queer man as being a white man. You know, gayness, queerness, even bisexuality was largely seen as something white people would do. Um, what would you say to that? And um, how did you reconcile your race with your sexuality? Were there, were there any conflict? There definitely was. Um, I had to dig back and look at Audre Lorde and look at um, James Baldwin and look at other examples of queer black, you know, people in history. And, and that's when I realized that we've always existed, whether we had the spotlight or not, we've been there. And it's important to know those stories. And I think my interest in history and research has always been kind of a part of who I am. And so I just naturally applied that to this part of my self-discovery. Um, but I, you know, there was also other media that I got into. There's a podcast called Making Gay History that kind of covered a lot of minorities and a lot of other people that aren't necessarily highlighted, that aren't white males, you know, um, that have helped the civil rights movement, um, the gay civil rights movement along. So it's really interesting um, because I think that's how I was able to kind of come to grips with it. And again, it was a slow burn. I had to read, you know, James Baldwin and I had to absorb Audre Lorde and I had to take these things very slowly. And once I was able to see that I wasn't again, the only one, it made me feel like, okay, I, I, I know this is not something that is just the property of, you know, the white community. I, I know that I belong here, even if I am sometimes the only black male in a space like pride where I, you know, I've gone to San Francisco pride and like, it's, it, even though the city is very diverse, you can be in a space sometimes where there are only other white males around. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's jarring, but I've learned to just invade those spaces if, if not, and feel mm -hmm. comfortable being in those spaces. And um, speaking of only white males around, how do you, um, is, is it comfortable for you to exist in the current political climate in the U S well, Ironically, my husband's white, so, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of diversity here in my home as well, um, and we talk about the current political climate all the time. It's not comfortable for me. 
at all. Um, one of the things we talked about actually is we used to live in Los Angeles when we moved to Sacramento, and we looked up like the the rate of minorities living in Sacramento versus the rate of minorities living in Los Angeles. And obviously it's not really comparable, but I just wanted to feel comfortable with knowing that I wasn't going to be in a town that was only white. Um, we also talked about moving to Pacific Northwest and we, we ruled out like Portland because of that, because there's not a lot of minorities. Um, so yeah, I, I think about it all the time. Um, we especially when we traveled, we went to um, Louisiana recently and we were very careful about holding hands and, you know, non-gay designated areas of the city. Um, we think about that as just being gay and interracial. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, considerations that have to go into it. And unfortunately, I think we're going to be in for four more years of that. But uh, what can I say? <laughs> Is, um, sorry, how, if it's too personal, but how does your husband identify? Does he identify as gay? He does, yeah. So um, that was also interesting because he never had a problem with me being bisexual, but others from outside of the relationship sometimes would make comments or aren't you worried he's going to leave you for a girl or, you know, are you, are you worried about him? Uh, you know, what if he decides he's not, he's not interested anymore in men, that sort of thing. But, uh, obviously we've been together for six years, so he, he's not worried. <laughs> <laughs> did it, uh, did it require, um, kind of reassurance on your part, um, that, you know, your bisexuality is just kind of there. It doesn't necessarily mean you're uh, polyamorous or cheating or, you know, all these other things that are associated with being bi. Luckily not. Um, in previous relationships, I had run into that problem. And um, funny enough, we met on online on OkCupid because mm -hmm. I uh, had had difficulty meeting people and I had had difficulty with that, having that conversation. And I actually had dated um, a bi girl and that was like the only time where I didn't have to have that conversation with somebody. Um, <laughs> Other than that, yeah, I had run into that. I had run into all of those issues. And then um, I decided to just go online and put it online because they figured, well, they'll know I'm bisexual and they'll either talk to me or they won't. And um, he initiated conversation. So it, it was never an issue. Yeah, because um, it's, it is a problem that a lot of people do um, have in relationship where they're not necessarily uh, gay and bi, but also straight and by um, uh, when the two, two partners don't have the same sexual orientation and this biphobia um, really um, comes into play and makes it more difficult to, uh, even if it's not like um, clear out uh, biphobia a bit more, you know, um, an implied internalized biphobia that you just feel through little things uh, that makes things a bit more difficult. It's also sometimes the problem would be that it's difficult for one partner to understand the other and their reality because of that. And in here, you, you're in your relationship, you're and your husband is gay, you're bi, and also it's an interracial relationship. So uh, it seems like it could be difficult to understand each other, each other's world and life experience. But it seems like it's working for you. So I don't know, what's your secret? Uh, is that he's really receptive to learning. 
<laughs> because there are so many teaching moments. There's a lot of, of sharing cultural differences and sharing differences as, as you know, I, I like to joke with him a lot that as bisexuals, um, we don't exist. Uh, and so it's harder for me to even like in a queer space sometimes get attention for the same causes that he could easily get attention for just as a white male. Um, and he understands that. And I think that he's been really open and receptive to like learning and hearing me out and hearing other people out and being um, aware of his privilege. And I think that helps uh, majorly. Otherwise, it would be really, really hard. But um, I'll ask him things too about, you know, things that I don't understand that are kind of exclusively gay and he can explain them to me in, in a way that is really palatable. So I think we both are able to share with each other um, those sorts of things. And speaking of, you know, spaces, as a bisexual black man, how would you like these queer spaces to be? How can they show that they're inclusive? How would you like to feel in them? Um, so even sometimes just the marketing at like, you know, and I don't go to a lot of these clubs anymore, but when I used to go out to like clubs in West Hollywood or clubs, any, any gay clubs anywhere, really, the marketing usually has white males. Mm. Um, and I think that that's something that they can start with is one higher, you know, if you're going to have pictures of models up, that's supposed to be enticing for people, for young people, especially, because this is how they're going to base what they think is attractive on is what they see around them. Make sure that you have inclusivity there. And then two, the people working in the actual establishments. One of the coolest things I remember about coming up to Sacramento was coming into a gay bar here and like seeing that there were people of different colors and height and size and shape all working at the bar. It wasn't really just like one muscle boy who's white, who's blonde, who's tan. You know, it was a nice difference to see that, oh, okay, there are tons of different people here. And, and I'd like to also see their be a focus on things other than sometimes just like the, the male body. We could have, you know, establishments, like there's a karaoke bar in Sacramento. That's a gay karaoke bar. That's really cute. I think we can do stuff like that as well. It's fun to have the clubs and to have people be half naked and to do all of that when you're young. Great. But I think there needs to be more of a, a sense of community in some of these spaces in order for everyone to feel comfortable, really. And in terms of online dating, I mean, I'm not really sure whether it's the same in the U.S., I'm assuming, but in in uh, Europe, a lot of um, queer online dating sites are rampant with um, racism, misogyny in terms of people just putting in their bios like no fats, no femmes, no Asians, things like that. Is that something that you have also experienced in this kind of queer dating scene before you... Uh, uh, you met your husband? Yes. Um, there's actually t-shirts they make now that say, yes, fats, yes, fans, uh, those sorts <laughs> of uh, phrases, which I love. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that was definitely something that I experienced. I think that's one of the reasons why I was kind of hesitant to get online, but it was also kind of a pro. Um, I think you have to be brave enough to know that you will encounter that, but you're the thing is, it's not like we're not encountering it in the everyday dating world anyway. So I think it's a twofold problem that it's not people feel empowered to do it online, but they're doing it every day. They're just doing it quietly. You're not still dating that same person that you wouldn't date online in, per, in person. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you saw them at a restaurant or a 
coffee shop, you're still not approaching them for the same exact reasons, for the same exact bigotry. So I think I didn't see much of a difference of it being online because I still didn't have access to the same people, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was fine. It's like, if you're not interested, that's fine. I, I really wouldn't want to date anybody who's racist anyway or who's, who cares about you know whether someone is femme or mask or any of that anyway. I think it's kind of silly. But uh, at the same time, um, I think the online dating environment does unfortunately make it, like I said, easier for people to do that. Um, they feel empowered. They feel like they can just, you know, it's just text. It's just preference is what is what most people say. Um, and the thing is uh, about that is I heard a good joke about that. Um, not liking broccoli is a preference because most broccoli is the same. You can you can get broccoli in only so many varieties, right? So mm-hmm. if I say I don't like broccoli, that makes sense. But not liking a person uh, for gender uh, or, you know, race or any of those other things is not necessarily preferential because one, that one person isn't representative of the entire race, right? And they can't be. <laughs> and so it's kind of unfair to say like, I, I, I have a preference new Asians when one Asian person is not representative of all Asian people. You can't possibly have known and experienced what it would be like to get to know all of them by knowing one like you could by eating one sprig of broccoli and eating broccoli. It's not the same thing. Absolutely. Human rights are not an, and not an opinion, as yeah. um, I mean, some it, people would it, claim. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 human rights are definitely not an opinion. I was just thinking that broccoli can actually be different, but yeah. <laughs> because like when they, they cultivate it in the greenhouses here, they actually don't taste like anything. So. Yeah, well. That's, sorry, that's, um, that's a very... That's what uh, happens when you live in the Netherlands. Yeah. You know a lot about broccoli and agriculture as well. <laughs> And, and, and taste less uh, vegetables. Well, I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually interesting that you brought the Netherlands up because I was actually thinking, um, you know, here uh, the Dutch are considered to be a very tolerant, accepting country that welcomes people of all faiths, religions, races, um, um, sexual orientations, whatever. Um, however, in the recent years, as in a lot of other countries, we have seen a growth of um, kind of right-wing um, politicians. Um, and the people who vote for them, there are more and more white gay men who vote for right-wing politicians, either out of fear of mass migration or any kind of you know other fear that, that a lot of right-wing politicians have a talent for stirring up. Um, have you seen similar trends in the U.S.? And if so, um, what would you say to those people? Um, they're called log cabin Republicans here in the U.S., um, and they are a specific group of, of gay man, men who are voting for uh, very kind of conservative Republican policies. Um, and it, to me, it's baffling. It doesn't make sense. Uh, a lot of these policies are anti-LGBT, so... I don't understand. Um, but I would say seek out the help that you need to be able to love yourself. Because I think that a lot of this does come from internalized homophobia and it's just not being properly handled. And I think that that's what we're dealing with when we deal with those people. They're, they're conflicted between you know, ideology sometimes that they grew up with, whether it's religious ideology or whether it's, you know, imprinted on them by their parents, 
Um, and I think that, you know, that just takes a lot of it. They're going to have to go through their own journeys and self-discovery, but everybody deserves equality and everybody deserves to be treated fairly under the law. And, uh, I'm, I just can't support those policies or those, those groups. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, the, 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 it's um, it, I totally agree that it's, it's really rooted in uh, internalized homophobia, and that no one who could really accept what it's like to be different, uh, and except for, for uh, including for themselves, would take it on another type of different. Yeah. It just doesn't, doesn't make any sense if you really accept yourself. Yeah. Exactly. And um, now for the uh, million-dollar question that we love to ask to all of our uh, all of our guests is um, representation. <laughs> what have you seen when you were going through your journey of understanding what was happening for you and and um, coming out and and even now has um, representation where you feel seen? Increase, decrease, has it stayed the same? Is there anything that you would recommend for our listeners to take a look at? Um, it's definitely increased. I think when I was young and coming out and dealing with all that, there were not a lot of uh, television shows or movies about young queer people. Um, Moonlight was a movie that came out that yeah. had young black men dealing with their sexuality. It was Fantastic. Um, Pose is a television show that's been out that has uh, mainly trans black characters and talks about that experience. That show is also fantastic. Um, I've, I love it. Uh, the new version of Queer Eye is great. Um, they kind of, I, I will say that it's a little tokenist in that they literally have like one white guy, one <laughs> Southeast Asian person, one black guy. But, but I do feel like that that's just them trying to you know, make sure that representation is covered and I appreciate it. And I think that it, the way that they approach people and problem solving and homophobia is fantastic as well. Um, so those are just the examples that I would, uh, point out there, but I also watched Will and Grace, like the original Will and Grace and that helped. I don't know if you guys had that, um, yeah. in Netherlands, but yeah, it was nice to just see, you know, gay characters living normal lives and to have both a really, you know, femme character and also, uh, Will wasn't hyper-masculine, right? But he was masculine enough. And <laughs> I kind of felt like that's who I was on the scale. I was never like super feminine, right? But I was never hyper-masculine. I was masculine enough. I kind of passed. <laughs> and so um, I really enjoyed seeing that and seeing those characters struggle with, you know, accepting themselves and and each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was actually a, a good show back then, also given the context. And yeah, I mean, I agree, like I saw, saw a pose and with Queer Eye, yeah. There, there, it has been a little problematic at parts, but it is a very sweet show. I mean, yeah, <laughs> definitely, I agree. <laughs> We're allowed our guilty pleasures, you know? <laughs> it is, I just have a, a, I think I have a thing with Stan and some other things he says. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> yeah, you don't. <laughs> You don't you don't dress for your husband or you don't like I don't know you don't look good for your significant other you look good for yourself. But that's uh, you know exactly. I am maybe I'm a little bit too picky. I don't know. <laughs> no, I agree with that as well. I think like you know you should first and foremost look good for yourself. It's a bonus if your significant other is happy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um. 
And lastly, um, we just wanted to ask you kind of, this is a little bit cliche, but um, if any kind of young queer person of color if, is listening to this and struggling with understanding who they are or, under, or struggling with acceptance, um, what would you say to them? Maybe some piece of advice or an encouragement? Find someone that you can talk to. It's really important to have somebody that you can trust, that you can talk to, and sometimes that, it makes all the difference. You may not be able to change your situation immediately, but having a, a trusted source of communication is always, is, it worked, I, for me, it was very helpful. And, uh, and I would say that that's something that can help you get through the day.